Welcome to another episode of LDN, London Digital Nattering. We're more than six months since the first COVID-19 lockdown, and even now government advice remains to work from home where possible. With our city economies built around commuter and business activity that may never return, this episode explores what impact COVID is going to have on the economy, the city environment, and social cohesion of our cities. I'm your host, Kieran Hanway, and I'm lucky enough to be joined by the perfect guest to help unpick this topic. Kira Walker is a construction economist with a proven track record forecasting the challenges and opportunities in the construction industry. Skilled in translating economics into real-world impacts and simplifying complex concepts to provide usable insight, Kira works to shine a light on an uncertain future and deeply understand the driving forces underlying the construction market. As usual, you'll find show notes on our site www.ldnpodcast.com You can follow us and say hi on Twitter at LDNpodcast and please do subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us. And now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kira Walker. Hello, Kira. Hi, Kieran. How are you doing? Oh, grand. Thank you. And welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time to join us today. No worries at all. My pleasure. So, Kira, for our listeners, um, you're a, a construction economist. Tell us all about that and tell us who you are. Um, it's, it's an interesting job, um, a, a difficult one, because it's about forecasting what's going to happen in the construction industry. And that can be everything from kind of material costs to labor costs to um, how much contractors are going to charge for the price of building a building. Um, and outside of that, obviously, to, to, to forecast that, I need to watch all the trends and, and, and kind of know what's happening in the industry. So I do a lot of uh, news watching um, and, and therefore have lots of opinions about uh, things to do with construction as well as uh, the general economics of it. Oh, fantastic. Now, in any kind of normal time, I guess uh, there'd still be tons of variables to deal with in your work, but uh, I guess COVID is a massive change. Um, so, so tell me about that. How's that affected you? Um, so COVID's, COVID's really interesting because it's obviously uh, interesting in a bad way, uh, but it's, it's very interesting because it's, it's a different challenge to one that's faced the industry before. Most other recessions or crises are a temporary demand challenge that don't tend to have very long-term impacts. The construction industry has been um, uh, historically slow to change um, and quite traditional. Uh, we still don't use a lot of automation, for example. Um, so now seeing seeing with COVID, it, it's not just a short term demand impact. It's an impact potentially on the supply of labor, um, potentially long term. It's an impact on the productivity on site. And it's also an impact on long term demand and how it will work. And some sectors are going to lose out permanently. Some sectors are going to see increased demand. So it, it very much has a different impact to other crises. So presumably, as a construction economist, you're you're concerned not just with uh, the demand and the impacts on actually building stuff, but the demand that drives the building. So yeah, exactly. So you you need to know about what what's going to come down the line for pretty much any industry that needs to be housed. Um, yes, um, it's. Um 
yeah it's you know you need to you need to kind of have an idea of of how things are going to impact and that's what's been really challenging with covid um this is changing the world we can see that it's changing the world Mm. already um major major tech companies for example in, in london in particular commercial office space drives a huge commercial office space and private housing are the two biggest most dominant sectors in the construction industry in this country and a lot of that is driven by london if you've got kind of the major multinationals who drive the demand for this huge amount of office space and therefore drive also the demand for premium housing around that office space um you know if you see them kind of making announcements like twitter did about how they're going to permanently have their staff shift to a working from home model um that has a huge impact on what we're looking at in in demand in a year's time um and obviously brexit will not help that either uh but yeah the the demand will the demand will change dramatically because of this and and um and that's not even thinking about the kind of the supply side that's just thinking about will we have demand for office space will people want to work um this is very much what's going on at the multinational level people the, you know big companies are for the most part doing an evaluation of whether the risk of bringing their employees back is worth the uh is worth the costs of the rent that they're you know the product are, are the is the extra productivity mm. they're going to get worth the costs of the rent worth the worth the risk um whereas that that kind of same thinking doesn't seem to have uh, filtered through as much to uh the smaller medium enterprises which it does make up the majority of employment in this country i think it's about 60% um which is just above the european average for um for proportion of people employed by smaller medium enterprises um right you know it, it, it's very different for those companies because uh, firstly, it's a different attitude. There's a cultural attitude, um, especially in the construction industry, but across a lot of small and medium enterprises of um, of having less flexibility towards that, that working from home, um, less flexibility towards that in general. Um, you know, they, they are doing less of the the automatic assumption that everybody's going to work from home. And, and some are calling people back into the offices at the moment. But uh, it, the multinationals, you know, they they've many have made announcements that at least until January, people are going to be um, working from home. Once we've seen once we've seen people have the experience of long term working from home, it's really it's really quite clear um, that that is a difficult thing to culturally shift once it happens. Once people have got used to that, got used to the quality of life that for many it um, it changed. Not saying for everyone, because a lot of people obviously have had a terrible experience of working from home for various right. reasons. But, uh, you know, for many, the experience has been positive and will be difficult to reverse once culturally it becomes accepted that uh, that, that is just how we work now. Okay. Um, so, so a vaccine created tomorrow would well hmm, say a vaccine created and released say in january february next year um do you you feel by then we'll be past the point of no return in terms of cultural shift i i feel like we may already be passing it now i know Uh a lot of i know a lot of people um this is a quote um from a friend of mine uh at the very beginning of lockdown you know the first three or four weeks um speaking to her uh and she said uh I didn't know I was allowed to do my job and have a life as well. Um, 
I didn't Goodness. know I didn't know it was possible to do my job and have a life as well. Um, and and I feel like a lot of people working in 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 London, particularly, but across the country, may have 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 you know have, may have experienced some some quality of life change that they didn't realize was feasible for them and it'd be difficult to get those people back into offices um yeah. full time at least i don't think that we'll all be working forever from home you know uh but to 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 have companies that absolutely refuse any flexibility i think is going to be much less likely than it would have been before the start of this crisis Right, right. Uh, I think I, I read some a similar thing or heard a similar thing. Uh, why am I busting a gut packed like a sardine on a train to get into work for nine o'clock to send an email? Yeah, yeah, exactly. it's absurd. It's absurd, it, isn't it? It is absurd. And I, I for one, um, have realised that uh, I don't need to be in an office. I, I just don't. Like there was literally the entire time I was working from home, there was there was no moment when I was like, I could do my job. I need to be in the office to do this part of my job. So clearly my job, for example, does not require office time. Um, I, I, however, am someone that does quite well on video conferencing. A lot of people don't and don't mm. like it. Um, and that's fine, too. Everybody's got their own um, kind of position on it. Um, so I think flexibility is the important thing for the future, not a blanket. Everyone's working from home. Everyone's in the office. Um, and that actually entails some really interesting business models um, that could come out of it. Things like the hub and spoke, where you have um, one central hub office that anybody who wants to work permanently there can work there, but then smaller hub offices, say, in the regions. Um, and if you want to live in Manchester and commute into your hub office once a week, um or you know once a month then that's that's a model that could work um there's other mo other models such as just having space in shared offices which obviously right now big problem not going to work but i think things like we work are going to see a lot of uh demand oh. um just when 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 we have a vaccine in that in that model of once we know the danger has passed, I think uh, models like the shared offices, once people have become used to the flexibility of working from home, it, it could be a cheaper way for companies to get people into meeting spaces without actually having to have that floor space themselves. Right. I mean, that that's fascinating. The point you make about WeWork. Um, well, it's I've lost all sense of time, Kira, but it feels like about a year ago they they failed to float. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. They, and, they've and, not done well. No, and I was reflecting on on that during lockdown, thinking, well, uh, I would be absolutely gutted if I'd been on that board with a whole pile of paper shares in my pocket uh, mm -hmm. right now during lockdown. Uh, I I had written off WeWork in my head, but you're saying with a hub spoke more flexible model, these these uh, shared spaces might be the answer. Yeah, it may not. Answer. It may not be WeWork itself because they may have uh, damaged their image too much yeah. or, or, for example, they may have overstretched themselves in terms of investment in property, which I think is more likely what happened mm. um, it, with, with them. But models like that, I'd say, were on they were on the up in terms of use, but they hadn't quite figured out how to make them profitable yet. Um, it, just before COVID, I think given, given COVID and people's increased demand for small you know, we won't see the kind of large open plan ones doing so well, but the ones that are based off of you book a meeting room and that is your meeting room for the day and you get to sit behind a wall of glass, not bothered by anyone. 
but away from your kids, for example. Um, oh, give me that. Give me some of that. Exactly, exactly. And I think a lot of people, the, the, what they find very frustrating with working from home is that they just don't have the space set up for it. You know, they they don't have um, a desk area that where they're not going to be disturbed by the children at all. They don't have um, good Wi-Fi connections that can keep them going. So I do think that we will see if not exactly the same kind of shared space solutions, some kind of creative solution to that come up. Um, and, and, and companies, if they're flexible to it, could really reduce their, um, their footprint um, and their, the costs that they're paying to, to be in the office space, you know, mm. um, just by doing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it must cost a, a bomb for not just employees to commute in, uh, but, but also for rent. Yeah, I mean, especially in central London, uh, rental costs are for office space are, are very expensive um, and they're and they're historically high as well at the moment, despite everything that's happening. Wow. Um, I mean, don't don't check me on that. I don't know. I don't know for the past kind of two months what the figures are, but they hadn't fallen as much as expected in the first months of lockdown because that office space is still it's still there. It's still being demanded. You know, it's still um, there are still companies that need that space. Um, we're not in a short, you know, we're not in a, a shortage situation or an oversupply situation. There's still kind of a balance of demand that is slowing. Um, and so I'd say we should see prices come down a bit. But um, it, pr- prices for individual office land is are very difficult to forecast um, or to talk about because it really depends on the individual deal. Um, right. that is made between the rentier and the renter. Um, yes. So yes. it's quite it's quite challenging to talk about in a general sense. But what is clear is that it's expensive, um, especially for prime property where most kind of central headquarter hubs would be located. Um, so there's the question of, you know, are we going to see more companies with multiple offices, but in the suburbs um, and much smaller? Um, is that what will end up happening? Uh, there's there's all different kinds of options, but basically the very expensive, huge central HQ um, could be a challenging model to see things based around for the next kind of at least I'd say at least two or three years because companies that, you know, that's a thing that takes a lot of lead time. Um, so people making a decision now about where they're going to base their HQ are probably going to think, well, I'll do a smaller office and wait and see. Um, yeah at the moment so that's so that's an interesting thing i do think that there's de- there's going to be a shift in the model of how um how companies manage their employment locations um yeah well I, i'd imagine i'd imagine for a um uh say say a service type industry that employs people doing desk work um you know not necessarily buying huge amounts of stock and shipping that on so just you know like an office-based job after payroll, presumably rent would be one of the higher costs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially, yeah. as I said, especially in London, um, especially in the city and especially in Westminster um, area. Yeah. Uh, both of those are historically very, very expensive. Uh, rent rent is a huge chunk of business costs in general. Um, so that's a big consideration to take. And that's, you know, as much as I'd like to laud Twitter for being very forward thinking and progressive and, you know, the thinking about their employees and then wanting to work from home the likelihood is they looked at their balance books and said we could save a ton of money by um by not having people ever come back in and and they probably saw that productivity hadn't dipped too much so money um, talks 
exactly and, and you know what I actually agree with that I'm like if if it if the model works and it makes your people happier great you know um, yeah. and speaking speaking of happier if we actually look at uh, the surveys that have been done um, on on whether the workers want to come back to work and, and what the employers want to do. Um, it, it's very interesting, the dichotomy. This is in the UK specifically. I haven't looked worldwide as much. Um, but in the UK specifically, uh, the vast majority of surveys showed that um, people wanted at the at least three days working week, um, flexible working a week that they just wanted the the option to have them. They didn't want necessarily want to work three days from home a week. They wanted to be given the option to take up to three days, if that makes sense. Um, right. And then when the same question was posed to bosses, you know, what would be your optimal level of flexibility? It came back as something like 0.5 days a week. Um, so there's clearly a huge dichotomy there between what, workers are demanding and what um well not even what they're demanding because you know nobody's in a position to demand right now with a recession um but what workers are wanting what they what they would desire and what employers want to offer there's a big separation there and what we're actually seeing is kind of a compromise between those two things where a lot of companies are a lot of companies are um basically saying uh you know oh yeah we're gonna let you work we're gonna let you work flexibly until january but then not actually kind of saying oh and after that we're going to change the model it's all being talked about kind of oh until january um so it'll be interesting to me whether we see a you know i i personally believe that the cultural shift will be inevitable um after every recession there is a generally a lot of churn um and if if there's a lot of churn and companies are seeing uh, that we're coming out of a recession and that they need to get the, the right workers in place to take advantage of that. And if all the workers are demanding more flexible hours, which they it seems likely they will be from the surveys. Um, if that is the case, we may see companies that aren't particularly comfortable with it forced into a position of offering um, more flexibility than they otherwise would have and you know as more companies do it more companies will have to do it to compete with those companies for those employees so in an ideal world given that it, it's very clear impetus from the employees to to move away from the model of, of very little flexibility that we currently have um I, I do think that will change and there'll be a lot of pressure on it to change if, if it doesn't change it will be very interesting um, to see what happens with employment, because I think a lot of people would be very frustrated to go back to the Basically, there's a dichotomy between the people who are kind of looking forward and reading all these newspaper articles, telling them that the, the new normal and the world has changed and they're never going to go back to the way things were. And at the same time, company bosses tend to be talking about getting back to normal and getting, you know, getting over this short term so that they can then return to normal working practices and I think one of those two groups is going to have a hard shock when this is all over and at the moment I think it may be company bosses um, not realizing that attitudes have shifted profoundly in the meantime 
Um, but, you know, I could be wrong and we could end up with uh, the workers being told to shut up and put up and everything going back to normal afterwards. Well, I, I hope you're right. And it, it, it's it's uh, interesting or sad or, or, or noteworthy that it takes a pandemic to, uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> right? to accelerate a trend that I think people kind of felt was either due or coming. Yeah. Um, but but of course, happiness of the employees is important because the employees are the people who make the money for the for the company. Um, but also, I suppose, given that rents are high, even though we don't have detailed numbers on it, bosses would have a shareholder um, duty as well, wouldn't they? they? Their job is to maximize profit for shareholders, assuming they're listed. Yeah. Um, and so- it. Go on. Sorry. And exactly. And I think that's partially why we're seeing multinationals and those kind of companies, the ones more likely to be um, shareholder owned, right. um, be more responsive to this because there they've got their shareholders going, well, your employees don't want to do it. And you could save all of this on rent. Why the hell are you wasting our money on um on, on, on an expensive, fancy office suite in central London. The yeah. people more likely to be trying to stay are the SMEs in part due to the fact that they don't have shareholders breathing down their neck about rents. They're also likely to have smaller spaces and therefore it's less of a huge cost. Um, but it's also the fact that, you know, uh, there's a certain element of pride that goes into owning a business. And if you're not in a shareholder and you're a, you're a direct owner, then not seeing the people that work for you every day, um, it, it's, a, it's a different thing. It's a different it, do, it doesn't feel quite the same. It doesn't feel as if you own a company as much. So it, it, it's very interesting that there's also kind of a, an attitudes thing um, where where there is shareholder pressure. It's more likely that we'll see um expensive rents dropped and if not you know a no hq model employed possibly um possibly a uh, um a, a hub and spoke model or some different model to what we saw before it, it's more likely that we'll see that with with people who have shareholder pressure on on expensive rents especially as we see kind of property really struggling um, from the retail sector as well, you know, we need they, they need all the um, prices may go up to cover the the difference. You know, the, it, it's difficult to to predict the impact, but um, one way or another, shareholders are going to be questioning why they're putting mm. why they're putting a load of money into rent. It's where there are no sh- shareholders with that pressure. It's more personal attitudes and traditional views come into play more. Right. It, it, yeah. A, a lot of economics has always seemed to me to be um, psychological. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But it, but it is. And the, the very the big problem, and I don't tell the other economists I said this, but the big problem with economics is that we started off on the fundamental basis that humans are rational, which is clearly a really terrible basis to, to base any science <laughs> on because we're not rational at all. Um, and yeah, I actually think some of the most interesting economic studies have been over the past kind of 30, 40 years where behavioral economics has become more the norm, um, you know, actually taking into account that people are idiots. Um, and I'm including myself <laughs> in that people are idiots, you know, like that's every, everybody. We all do incredibly irrational things like right. order McDonald's at three in the morning, knowing it's going to make us feel disgusting the next day. You know, like that's yeah. it's it's uh, we all do it. Um, so, yeah, it, it's and it's this is the same thing. You know, there may be some of that 
irrational human behavior that has more to do with attitudes and culture than it does to do with if we were looking at this in purely a, a monetary calculation the argument for why you should keep people in the offices unless you've seen a huge dip in productivity in your company which i haven't seen reported anywhere i have not seen reported anywhere that companies are saying we were half as productive when we had people working from home because and, and i really think that if they were they wouldn't be they wouldn't accept this dip in productivity to let people work from home longer um, given the option by the government, which they've clearly been given to bring people back. Um, so, yeah, I think the productivity numbers support um, the share, that, that view of shareholders kind of being like, well, why are we still paying for this fancy office if productivity hasn't dropped and rents are really expensive, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, well fi 500 grand per year, for example, argument's sake, for a big office in London saved in rent is straight onto the bottom line. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's just pure cash. You, you, it's not productive. It wouldn't have been doing anything other than literally giving you a space. And if that space isn't contributing to your productivity, why are you paying for it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So 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 that let, let, let's assume you, you were saying we're kind of on a uh, that something's going to happen. Either the workers win or the bosses win. Uh, I'm trying to oversimplify the argument here. Um, let, let's assume then that, you know, the offices do start closing in London. The demand dries up, whatever. Um, this completely screws the property owning portfolio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's there's a big question. Uh, there's a big question, basically, right now, um, as to whether uh, it's a big question as to whether we are going to change the model that the past 20, 30 years of economics in the city centre in London has been based on or we're, and we'll change the model because it's not working and it wasn't working you know the price let's let's not forget that the prices of commercial offices uh and premium housing in central london haven't been doing well for the past three or four years anyway and that's not just because of the b word you know that's that there's a variety of reasons for that and that's just because in my opinion they've oversupplied to to a country that was kind of slowing down in growth anyway and wasn't um and wasn't seeing that huge demand that we saw during the noughties um you know, so that was happening anyway. Uh, it, how are we going to approach it afterwards is the question. So at the moment, the government is very much talking like we will go back to the new that, you know, we'll go back to normal, they keep saying. And mm. normal for many people is what, what's the what's the meme that's going around? Normal for many people is is traveling in on an overpriced train um to a debt to a to an office space that, that is too crowded and that they don't enjoy um to pay for an overpriced sandwich to then go back to work to then be told that they're lazy you know like it, it's it's it, pe people aren't necessarily happy with with the way the old model was working and also the way the old model worked it absolutely relied on everyone coming into the center of the city working in offices in the center of the city to to sustain the entire economy that's based around people buying pret sandwiches for example right um mean that's that's a model that it could you know what i'm a skeptic and it could very well be rammed back into place the moment this is all over because there's a lot of like there's a lot of interest in keeping going it's very profitable to own property in central london and rent it out or well it was up until like three months ago um 
you know, that's it's very profitable and there's a lot of interest in keeping it going. But if you can't convince the people that it's in their best interest to keep doing that, it's going to be difficult to go back to that model. Um, And as I said, that comes down to the cultural attitude and how much it will have shifted in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. The the Pret thing is interesting. Um, So this week, um, Pret have announced, are you sure you don't want to go back into the office, Kira? Pret have announced a subscription service. Um, It's £20 a month um, and you can get up to five drinks a day from Pret for that subscription. I, I am a bit of a caffeine addict. I don't think I would want to drink five Pret coffees a day. Yeah, like that's a that's a lot, firstly. And secondly, do they not realize that we are able to make that amount of coffee from home um, for the same amount? Like that's not a reason to go into the city center. I don't I don't. This whole this whole go back to work to save Pret thing is is so confusing to me for two reasons. Firstly, the way it's being framed is as if we have not been working in the meantime. The amount. Right. The amount of times and I and I do it myself because that's the language it's being talked about in. But it is being framed as we got to get people back to work. I never stopped working. Did you? Uh, You know, like uh, I never stopped working. So why am I being discussed as if I have not been working? I have. I've been working actually some of my most productive hours in my entire life. Um, So it's, it's very frustrating to me when it's treated like you know we're all we're all just swanning about at home having the time of our lives instead of shopping in pret like we're supposed to um well well, anecdotally you know it's um in some cases i fear that it's not even necessarily not just higher productivity but also longer hours Uh, oh yeah people are are using their commute time for the work i think somebody uh somebody said i'm no longer commuting to work i'm living at the office yeah yeah, and I think that unfortunately that's the downside of it. So like a lot of companies, a lot of the bigger multinationals, that's another reason they've kind of gone. Well, maybe we'll keep this because they they've noticed they're getting more man hours out of people than they were before. And I don't I don't know about you, but I found that uh, it's much easier for me to sink into that um that space of oh what's it called flow. The kind of the when you're mm. in when you're in the zone and you're just working and it's just happening um, and and you don't I trust me in the office I never once looked up and said oh my god is that the time that, that today flew um, but I have had it happen at home where I where I look up and I'm like oh it's three o'clock and I forgot to eat lunch you know because yeah. uh, <laughs> there seems to be like a time warp um, where I guess it's not having other people around you you just don't necessarily know what's going on because you're not reflecting your own behavior against others and being like oh well they're going for lunch it's probably around lunchtime you know um so that's obviously it's not a healthy thing it's not great that employees are overworking but at the same time personally the way i felt with working from home is if and and this has been reflected in 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 quite a lot of anecdotal data um is is if if I've if you know if I've been able to do the dishwasher on my lunch break and I've been able to hang out my washing then I don't need to stop working at six because the time that I would have usually been taking to to once I got home to do all these chores and to get on with my like life admin that's already done so you a lot of people will take that as an extra half an hour's work and just 
say, well, I'll just finish what I was doing. It's also that kind of the human mentality of just finishing up what you were doing is is such a powerful thing. Um, and that doesn't happen with people in an office space when they know they have to get home for dinner time or whatever else. But it does happen. Um, but it does happen in 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 much more so in home where, there, where people will be like, oh, well, it's only another half an hour. And that's the company's getting half an hour, an extra half an hour out of people, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Pret, Pret, I, I actually really like Pret, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not having a go at Pret, but it has been used as a totem. Yeah. Uh, and, and so people have, have talked, you know, about what, what, what you want me to give up all of the benefits that you've just talked about in terms of washing your, washing your clothes and getting your admin done, or in my case, well, probably doing that and being on time to pick up the kids and yeah, exactly. stuff like that. But, but, you know, you want me to risk that so that I can buy a sandwich. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, you know, my, yeah. my company actually, you know, uh, some of some of and I'm, I'm not the only one, but my company actually used that as part of the rationale for going back to work. Um, you know, we need to support the economy, like Boris Johnson told us. And I, I feel quite strongly that I'm already supporting the economy by working hard and spending yeah. in my local area. You know, I'd rather spend in my local area than than necessarily support Pret. I like Pret well enough, but I don't feel passionately about their profit margins, you know? No, um, no, quite. And and also if they can't adapt. Yeah, then that's exactly then, you know, that's that's it, this is this is what's it, it's frustrating because it's the same thing as the financial crash in in 2008 that, you know, if I have badly, you know, if I have not chosen the right education route for what I want to do and I can't get a job. Yes, I'm given benefits, but I'm certainly not, um, you know, I'm certainly not in a system where people are being requested to give me a job. Um Whereas if, if if Pret has chosen the wrong business model, yes, admittedly, they couldn't have known that it was the wrong business model at the time. But if they've chosen a business model that has put them in a in a worse situation than other comparable country uh, companies, um, such as, for example, Pret is doing badly because they're focused entirely on the uh, work office lunch market. They're not yeah. really in areas where people don't work or commute um, commute to. They're most, you know, they're not in the local towns, you know, within London or, you know, they're, they're, they're not they're just likely to be in places that are where people work. Whereas if you look at like a Nando's, they've always been both where people work and where people live. And that is proving a lot. It's made it's made it a lot easier for them um, to survive this because they are be, they've been able to open for delivery and open and actually get business in whereas Pret opened as soon as they could but were struggling to get people in because there's just no one in the offices and that's the only places their locations are you've talked a little bit about the the hub and spoke model it does feel as though how this will change the city landscape and how mm-hmm. this might hollow things out so with the move out to the hub and spoke and with the emptying of cities what what's going to be the impact how Let's wind the clock forward 10, 20 years. What what do we think, say, central London might look like? Well, see, in my crystal ball, um, the details are clear. No, um, it, it, honestly, it's um, it, it's hard to tell because there are different models for what what could happen. You know, the the worst, the absolute worst. Uh, poor Detroit. It's always used as the model of the absolute worst. But the absolute worst that could happen is a a hollowing out, a complete hollowing out of of 
the city and and people leaving because there's no there's no reason to be there anymore. Now, that is very, very unlikely in London, because whatever else, there's other things here than just um, one industry. And, and it's unlikely that we're going to move to a model where nobody ever works in the office ever again. I mean, this is me calling this now, you know, if we then get another pandemic on top of this one and then another one, then we may see attitudes change completely and all cities start to hollow out. But um, uh, I don't think we're headed towards a Detroit anytime soon in London, um, for example, or in any city in the UK, really. Um, However, one interesting example is is more kind of your San Francisco, um, where the you know where the city center has recently been regenerated and made basically made back into usable communal space because it was it was um a lot of office space it was a lot of um it was a lot of office space and a lot of housing which then um it, people moved to the suburbs um for various reasons in san francisco but also because there was the draw of silicon valley and people there was no interest in living in the city center in san francisco just because it wasn't the great location yeah. and over time you know if people aren't living and working in an area um the crime rates go up uh, property values go down and it becomes increasingly difficult to fix that area without a huge amount of investment. So that's one massive watch out for city planners, for example, is how if if you are losing space that you always assumed would always be used for working commercial space. We literally have a planning category for it. Commercial space. If we if we lose that category in many cities, which is the cent- the center of cities in, in many cities is purely office working space. This is, I mean, I don't want to be too London centric here, but then London is the city I know more about. Um, but most cities have a, a kind of central business district and, and that is connect and that is that the center of the transport networks usually. Um, once once that is no longer a draw, you know, first the offices go, then the the retail around it. Obviously, there's no reason to be there. It, it, what do you do with those spaces? And I think there's some amazing creative um, ideas for what you can do with that kind of space afterwards. I mean, Rotterdam has some fantastic examples of innovative building design um, to manage their um, flooding problems, for example. Uh, one public square in Rotterdam is designed to act as a reservoir when there's floods. So no it takes it. Ta- yeah, yeah. So it's designed to take in in a hidden way to take in a lot of water and basically hold it slightly lower than the surrounding area. So the water basically flows to there rather than flooding the streets. It's really interesting, innovative design. And, you know, they the reason they could do it and many other cities in Holland couldn't do it is because Rotterdam was completely bombed out during the Second World War. So they have a lot more space um, that isn't taken up by beautiful old buildings to, to do creative and innovative things with with buildings, for example. Um so, you hey, know, that's, that's what we could use Docklands for. <laughs> exactly. But that, that's exactly the thing. You know, the, if there are people seem to see the the idea that we will no longer have a model of central offices with sandwich shops and um, pubs, you know, as, as a tragedy. Um, and actually, it's a huge opportunity for people to do something more exciting with public space and, and more you know, if we accept that most people are going to work from home at least a couple of days a week, are, are we making the areas that they live in more livable? Are we are we making because, you know, I, I, I'm very lucky 
um, where I live right now that it's it's quite, you know, there's a lot of local shops and it's quite a busy, you know, the town. I mean, it's obviously in London, but it's got kind of that town feeling to it. Whereas, um, whereas I, where I've lived previously, <clears throat> which was East India on, on the DLR, um it, just after canary wharf um mm. on the dlr it it was a huge residential development with one local shop and nothing else not even a park nothing um so for for city planners they've got a huge challenge coming up which is are they desi- are they designing cities to what we are being told which is get everybody back to the way it was before and is that even going to work if cultural attitudes do shift to the extent that I think they might, or are are we going to give city planners leeway to say, look, this space is going to change. Why don't you help it change in the best way possible? Um, so, you know, that's, that's a big, that's a big thing in how I think the way cities are designed, if we do see um, all of this uh, happen, um, if we do see a massive cultural shift in this, I, I, I'd be really interested. I, personally, I, I think it'd be really interesting to work in the planning departments that make those decisions about how literally how the cities are designed are, is changed. Absolutely. Uh, I guess um, they call this the, uh, do- the donut effect. Is that right? Uh, the donut effect, the, 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 as in the center of the city, the economic activity, yes, yeah, leaving yeah. the center and moving to the outskirts. Yeah. Um, which, which I guess would be great. I mean, there are a lot of other problems that might be solved. For example, homelessness with um, all of this office space being freed up. I mean, and yeah, that's part of it. And then, you know, it's not just office space. It's also retail space because that was already happening anyway. The high street was already losing retail properties at an incredible rate because people buy online. That was a cultural attitude shift that people have been saying for 10 years wasn't going to make a difference into how cities looked and then all of a sudden people are like oh we don't have any shops anymore and it's because that that's what people have been saying oh this is it's just a trend it'll reverse no it's a permanently more convenient way of doing something and people don't take the longer route if they don't have to so my opinion has always been on that you know we should accept that this is going to change and we should make the best out of it changing and i don't think we've done it this time with the offices um i think we should take advantage of it you know with with the homelessness you know you'll know yourself here in the uk what what happened was um we knew that we couldn't leave the homeless out in the streets during the height of the covid lockdown so we found them places and and yourself and, and myself and many people questioned well but you told us there wasn't space for them. So if there yeah. was, all, if you found the space in a week, then there was always space for them. And and you know how hard is it going to be for governments to go back to saying, oh, there was no space when we now know that there was. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. It's clear. It's clear as day now that homelessness has always been a policy. Yeah. A, a, a governmental policy, and and I'm not I'm not speaking as a supporter of any particular uh, political party as it happens, but just because this is something that's persisted through very many different governments. Um, and, and speaking of, sort of government, uh, back to back to the point you were making there about retail. So uh, that's absolutely spot on. It does feel, as we touched on earlier, as if there's an acceleration thanks to COVID. Um, but in the retail space uh, over the past 10 years with the drift away from the high street to online, you know, that there's been a constant debate. And I think recently there's been especially strident calls for more of a digital tax mm-hmm. 
So uh, effectively, uh, the government trying to hold back the waters of actual real organic change in a shift to online. Yeah. Um, which is, 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 you know, it's, it's going to be a massive um, government investment and tax burden on people to, to enforce that shift. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you, do you not see that there's a, or do you see that there's a possibility perhaps that uh, government is going to just try and hold back the waters again um, by trying to force us all back into this business model? Or do you think it's something that, um, as we touched on earlier, the, the, the corporate and the employee cultural shift will just override it? I, I think there's no chance whatsoever of getting people back into pure retail, like high, high street shopping, I think is, is it's on the way out strongly, strongly on the way out, which, you know, if, if, but if, if COVID hadn't happened, in my opinion, it would be on the way out in a worse way than now that COVID has happened, because with COVID, we've seen a resurgence in people going to their local shops, um, literally the, the corner shops and the, the and their local charities and their local, you know, the small, not the chains, basically. The chains are going to suffer. The chains were going to suffer whatever happened because it is much easier to buy online than to go to a massive Primark. That, that's That's just... It, it, that's just for from vast majority of people online is more convenient. Um, so that was happening anyway. But if we if we instead of seeing a pure shift from, you know, high street in high street and giant mall shopping to pure online, instead of seeing that, we see a shift from high street and mall shopping to organic, local, um, domestic close to you shopping that has a much less environmental impact that isn't actually a terrible thing in my opinion so thank you covid for at least one um at least one positive influence (laughs) yeah brilliant Uh, brilliant so 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 here we are hopefully going to shift into a new normal um what is it specifically that digital can offer so the, and we've we've talked in sort of grand economic terms and business models and such, but are, are there specifically digital solutions now to some of the challenges that businesses are going to face? Um, absolutely. So the first and foremost of these is smart buildings. Um, there is so much that smart buildings can do to make the ones that do want to return to the office, the whole experience be less unpleasant and feel safer as well. Um, so there's a slight issue there with most of these run by some kind of contact point. Um, and obviously, you know, you have to give people kind of keys to press it with or something to avoid any contamination. But yeah. things like um, things like smart buildings can be made to only allow a certain number of people in the lifts at a time um, by default. Things like things like the digitalization of room bookings. So you don't have to go and speak to anyone. There is no confusion of just multiple people waiting outside a room. It, it can be it can be made really easy to come in, use your space desk booking, for example. That's part. That's another smart building function. You know, if you if we are moving to a more flexible world of work, how are we going to facilitate that? The vast majority of the technology that could facilitate that is, is smart building technology. Um, and, and, you know, things like apps created by the shared uh, workspaces, models like that could be employed more widely across companies rather than just, um, 
just the companies that own the shared office spaces, we could see the multinationals themselves adopting a system where they um, where they have an app which lets you book um, space in the office if you need it next week uh, because they only have a very small footprint, for example. Um, it, that's that's one area that it could be. We also there's a huge amount of work going into making buildings smarter in terms of their energy efficiency and in terms of their um, climate control within the buildings. And obviously during the COVID time, that is so important because air conditioning, the quality of air conditioning, um, the temperature you keep the building, all of these are constituent factors to how hygienic it's going to be, how often people need to wash their hands, how sweaty people get and therefore are touching things with their sweaty hands. You know, all of these things are things that if you have control over them, which a smart building technology increasingly allows you to do, you can um, you can ensure a safer environment, basically. Um right which is really positive in this day and age. Um, other examples I'm thinking of is more is more like how to, when you are in the office, how to ensure that, uh, empl- that if, if employees are as efficient as possible. And there's all kinds of really interesting tech for, you know, if we are going to be using much smaller spaces and we have to book a desk and so we don't have our own permanent desk, obviously that has hygiene risks. Um, in and of itself but if that is the model that some companies choose to use there's some really interesting new technology that kind of adapts to like it adapts the individual lighting of that desk and the individual um, uh, temperature of that desk you know the, the nearest fan will adapt to the preferences that it recognizes from that profile so if you consistently go in and you're like it's far too hot at this desk and immediately turn the the vent that points at the desk down by five degrees on that app, it will remember that and make the desk that you go to the most comfortable environment possible for when you get there. So there's some really there's some really interesting innovation happening around the Internet of Things and use of digital technology to actually manage how a building systems are used. Um, but, you know, there's also some some stuff that doesn't seem to quite be there yet, like uh, the smart lift technology where you tell the lift where you're going. I don't know if you've ever used one of these, but it's one of those where you tell the lift what floor you're going to and then it tries to bunch you with a load of other people that are going to the same floor so that they can get, it's basically, it's theoretically so you can get as many people up as possible, but what ends up happening is you just end up waiting in the lobby whilst you watch other lifts go by, wondering why you've been relegated to not being allowed to go up to your floor. So there's still some that obviously needs working on, but there's just some really, there's some really interesting new technology, and it's 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 really interesting time for the construction industry in gen- and the property industry in general. Because um, it's quite a traditional industry and we've never we've been slower to adopt all this than a lot of other areas. So, I mean, I personally see a lot of excitement for um, and a lot of excitement in prop tech, um, which is property technology. Um, and, and, and smart buildings is one area that I personally can't wait to see come in more, come in more use. But then, you know, there's also some home built homes, home technology, which uh, it's not just the offices. It's also the home technology which could come into use, such as with the increasing use of online ordering, 
the smart fridges which tell you when you're just about to run out of something and, and order something you know will we see that being more demanded as people are doing more online ordering it, it's just it's very interesting area of technology that i think is still very much in development is still very nascent um but i reckon we'll see take off extremely in the next four or five years kira part way through this recording my internet died and uh, I think this points also to another massive change and in investment we need to see uh, yeah. in the country, which is broadband. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, did you know that we're um, I don't know, you probably already know this, uh, but we're we're way behind most European capitals in terms of access to, to fast broadband um, in, in London, which which I just found I found shocking when I read it. And then I went to look it up and Paris apparently has like double the broadband speed on average than wow. we do which which was just shocking to me because i do not associate france with really high internet speeds to be honest um mm. but it just seems like in the capital most other countries have made like a huge national investment to have high speed broadband and I, I question as to why london which is you know purported to be the center of the business world um hasn't done the same um, it's confusing and very important if we are going to shift to a working from home model. So, so I'm a German speaker and I, I, uh, I remember scoffing last year or the year before at uh, an article that I read in a German uh, business uh, magazine about digital transformation in Germany. So to me, digital transformation is very much on the experience side, on the business model change side, all of that stuff. Um, but when they were talking in this magazine, in, in this German magazine, they were talking about digital transformation. It felt to me like the railway boom of 200 years ago. Um, they, they were talking about uh, uh, kilometers of, of optical fiber laid rather than, you know, the, what I've just talked about, the, the yeah. business models. And I found that very strange. But uh, maybe they were right. <laughs> Well, you know, or maybe both are right, to be honest, because yeah. um, it both that is a very German attitude, by the way. I love that. Oh, this is the <laughs> infrastructure we have laid. This is how yeah. we're going to approach this. Yep, yep. fantastic. Really like that. Um, to be <laughs> honest, I'm probably more of the German mentality. I'm like, what infrastructure have you put down to allow this to happen? Um, you know, that's that's kind of more my my approach to it. But um but it, it, it both are very important because you need cultural attitudes and business models and and that to change. But you also need the infrastructure to be able to do it. You can't ask a company that is based out in in uh, where was it? The Midlands has a lot of holes, but it's the the Lake region. That's the one. The Lake region right. um, in the UK has some of the biggest uh, broadband holes um, in the entire country, and. Uh, you know, you can't ask a company that's based out of there to go fully work from home because half their employees are basing it off cell phone Internet, you know. Yeah. Um, and that like me right work. now as it happens. Thank you, Virgin Media. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Kira, we're, we're, we're nearly to time. So uh, thanks so much. How can people find out more about you? Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't post that regularly, but I'm trying to get more active on it. Um, uh, C Walker Insight. It's mostly about uh, the construction industry and trends that are happening there. Brilliant. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes and link to your to your profile on Twitter. Um, are there any particular trends you think as people as people finish this podcast that they should jump on their uh, their smartphones if they're not connected to broadband at the moment and go and look up anything you're particularly fascinated by 
I mean, I think smart buildings is really interesting. And mm. I, that's such a huge topic that saying to you all, oh, go look at smart buildings. Um, it, you know, I would if, you, if you're interested in that area, I would look at what's being done in smart buildings in offices. And it, actually, I will be posting on Twitter um, uh, a piece that I'm going to be doing that on that in a couple of weeks time. Um, so if you are really interested in smart building technology, uh, have a look there. It'll just be a one pager, but it's kind of saying what the deal is with it. Um, but yeah, smart buildings is really interesting because um, it's it's using that Internet of Things, which we hear so much about, but never actually know what it is. Mm. Um, it's it's <laughs> using all of those sensors to make buildings more responsive to how people actually use them. Um, and especially in the case of offices, it's a long overdue innovation, which I think will make being in an office more pleasant for all of those like me who are finding it challenging, thinking how they're going to be back in the office long term. Um, right. it, it, it's reassuring to know that they, they will be made into better spaces. That's brilliant. And then another area that I'm, this is not necessarily digital, digital, but it's it's technology and innovation. So I'm going to throw it in there anyway. Um, modular construction um, is, is really interesting. Yeah, I don't know if you know of the kit houses um, in Germany. It's basically factor, making making factories produce construction rather than um, labor, which is which is you know in in pandemic times, obviously it, it's an interesting consideration because the more you can remove uh, people from a process, the the safer it it tends to be considered to be. Um, obviously that has employment consequences as well, but uh, it, it's it's worth highlighting and the reason i highlight modular for this conversation in particular is um in japan the way that they buy houses is completely different to how we do it we they don't look at um is it old does it have character is it beautiful um which is what the the main things that are prized in the uk tend to be character um how old it is and and it's it's aesthetic properties mm. um, in Japan. They look at the safety certificate that comes with the building and they'll often look at um, they'll often, you know, is it earthquake proof? Is it fireproof? Um, all of these things, because they have to deal with actual natural uh, consequences that their houses have to be ready for. What I'd be interested to see would be a modular company producing a hygiene standards safety certificate and whether people would start to look at that as a as a consideration in future maybe not here in the uk but we could see it adopted more widely in countries that are already a bit obsessive over hygiene like japan um and and other actually some european countries as well well i never thought i'd see people walking around the street wearing masks so exactly so who knows it may happen exactly yeah. kira thank you so much for joining us on the show today and and giving so much of your time and uh, I've really, really enjoyed enjoyed the chat. Uh, for those listening, show notes uh, will be available with all of the uh, the stuff that Kira's talked about. And um, yeah, thanks again. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. I was joined today by the construction economist Kira Walker. You can follow Kira on her Twitter at cwalkerinsight. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Please leave a healthy, robust rating on your podcast app and smash that subscribe button. As usual, you'll find show notes on our site, www.ldnpodcast.com. Come join us on Twitter. I'm at Kironi, and this show is at LDN Podcast. Thanks for joining us and catch you next time.